Hello and welcome to the first episode of Loose Cannon, a podcast all about civil liberties. I'm Jonathan Gadir. Now, why do we need to talk about civil liberties? Why do we need a podcast about it? Well, I think for many people, the authoritarian character of the response to the pandemic over the past 18 months has shocked us and that's led many overseas observers to wonder whether Australia can even be considered a liberal democracy anymore. And yet it does seem that Americans and Europeans are more outraged on our behalf than Australians are, or at least that's the way it seems. To help me talk about these issues intelligently and to remedy this silence on civil liberties in Australia, I have with me Parnell McGuinness, Managing Director of Strategy and Policy at the strategic communications firm Agenda C. And she's done work in the past for Australian Liberal Party and the German Greens, and she writes columns for the SMH and The Age. Hi, Parnell. Hello, Jonathan. Yes, the encroachment on our liberty and the enthusiasm which many Australians have shown for the harshest measures has caused people that I know abroad to suggest that tyranny is not going to come to Australia with tanks rolling through the streets, but when Australians voted into power. And, you know, sometimes looking at the, the polls, I wonder whether they're right. A lot of philosophers have talked about the state that our world is in um, with regards to liberty. We're actually becoming less liberal. And they've made the point that Liberty is something that is not a natural state of humanity and that needs to be constantly renewed. So hopefully that's what we can do in this podcast. Yes, wise words. And I think with these shows, the idea is that we're going to have lots of guests on. We're going to delve into civil liberties debates that have you know, erupted in this era of lockdowns, but not only about pandemic-related civil liberties issues, but the whole range of issues like human rights acts and police powers and surveillance. And I wanted to do that in a way that crosses over right and left echo chambers, because I don't think I really fit into any of the political or cultural camps that we have, um, you know, these days. And so, you know, I, I think it's, we need something more. And I think this podcast is hopefully going to give us that. So, Parnell, do you think we should just be incredibly ambitious and say, well, we want this show to make Australians care more about freedom? Absolutely. Why not be the most ambitious and say this podcast is about renewing the license of liberty? Yes, definitely. Um, we want to have a range of views. We want to have interesting people on who will hopefully be from left, from the right and from in between and who won't agree with each other and will let listeners decide what they think. Parnell, tell me why you care enough about civil liberties to want to do a podcast. Well, for me, it's quite personal in some ways. So my mother was East German and I spent a lot of time in East Germany before the ball came down as a child. I used to get dropped off there and left there during the school holidays, which was a confronting experience. Well, actually, I mean, not at the time. It was quite okay. It's not like they, they tortured me. But I did see a lot of how an authoritarian society works um, and also how how food shortages can work as a result of certain authoritarian decisions and how a society like that ends up with a layer of apparatchiks that is much more evil than any set of capitalist billionaires that the left imagines it for itself. So that started my interest in issues of policy and of freedom. 
And since then, I, I've done work for a couple of political parties, among many other things. I did some work in Germany for the German Green Party, which was a very liberty-focused party at the time, very interested in the free movement of people and in opening up to the world. And after that, when I came back to Australia, I also did a little bit of work for the Australian Liberal Party when they were talking about policy in a way that was going to explain to people how important some of the issues around transparency and freedom are. And so while it seems very contradictory to a lot of people that I've that I've worked in such different different political genres, yeah, yep. for me there is a real, a real sort of cohesion to it. Yeah. For me, I've got this strange situation. I've got um, you know, Jewish background. Grandparents on one side spent 10 years in the Soviet gulags and the grandparents on the other side were Nazi Holocaust survivors. So, I, And I grew up hearing stories um, about um, life in the, you know, in the Soviet Union and life in the prison camps. And I think um, even though I did the, I've, I've sort of followed a kind of a lefty path, you know, I studied sociology and I so worked for the ABC, um, and I think I'm very left wing. Um, I still have this sense of how uh, bureaucracy and uh, mixed with a kind of ideological fanaticism can destroy people and can 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 ruin people's lives and, and can be you know dangerous. And I think there's a sort of authoritarianism that's popped up in the last eighteen months that's merely really made me wonder um do i think australia has a future as a democracy so with the show i think this is something we can do and i want to build a link to the listeners and i want the listeners to talk back to us and to email us and recommend us topics and tell us people we should have on and um and you know stuff we should cover and tell us if we're wrong and all that sort of good stuff Uh, contact details will be in the show notes for our first show young economist Dr. Cameron Murray to help us understand the lockdown in a different way. I think the agenda we're going to follow generally is to have a rant between us first and then a sensible discussion with someone who knows what they're talking about. So that's going to be Cameron today. So I came across Dr. Cameron Murray for the first time in an Australian Financial Review article the other day. He wrote a fascinating piece about the longevity machine, which leads us to have these long and healthy lives that we now live. But it turns out, so Cameron is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Henry Halloran Trust at the University of Sydney. And he's generally on the left, but in a lot of his blog posts, he talks about feeling no longer quite at home on the left, which is something you've mentioned feeling yourself, Jonathan. Um, So he's sort of challenging ideas in a really interesting way. Uh, He made his name originally as the author of Game of of Mates and and this contrarian streak, well, it may have hurt him in some circles, but I think overall, Cameron, it hasn't really put too much of a dampener on, um, on, on your profile, I hope. Um, and you've been challenging sacred cows for some time, including the superannuation system. And most recently, as I mentioned in that article, um, the public health response to the pandemic and whether they're striking the right balance. So, yeah. hi, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Parnell. Thanks for having me. Let's start with that uh, concept of the longevity machine, which you talked about in that article that Parnell mentioned. I think... 
sort of missing from the discussion about lockdown is really a, a proper cost benefit, you know, weighing up of the pros and cons and understanding how societies produce health, you know, across the board, not just stopping COVID. So tell us a bit about this idea of the longevity machine. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. So from the very beginning of this COVID panic, I have been somewhat astounded at how we've um, ignored the health and well-being benefits that our day-to-day lives provide. It's, it was a real puzzle for me. And, uh, and what I'd, I'd learned in the last 12 months is that actually most people don't have a good mental model of how a society makes people live a long time. They just assume longevity falls from the sky, we could lock everyone up and all these um, gains in well-being and longevity uh, would persist. Um, but but I'm, my mental model is that that's not the case. In fact, everything we do every day contributes to this social process that provides us well-being and longevity. So the thing that I tried to explain with this concept of the longevity machine is that what we call the economy, we could also call it a longevity machine. It's a, it's a social process, the sum of which creates not just economic activity and economic goods and services, but human health and well-being. That's why Australia in 2020 has a life expectancy of 82 or 83 years. But even just five years ago, uh, it was uh, 80 or 81. So we've, even in the last five years, we've added this extra year or two of life expectancy across the board to every single person because of what we do every single day when we leave the house. So the idea of writing this was just to make the point that if we stop what we're doing every day, uh, we're going to risk uh, long, our longevity across the board for all 25 million of us, uh, irrespective of how many COVID deaths we may or may not prevent or delay. So that's the uh, motivation behind it. And essentially, um, so in, you've also written that um, the public health policy seems kind of detached from uh, scientific and logical reality. That That's on COVID I'm talking about. You wrote, quote, there are two schools of thought. Science stands for healthy scepticism, asking for better evidence. Then you have a second school of thought that is public health it has the stance that we have a crisis we are like an army the platoon must do this or that anyone who leaves the platoon must be shot down kind of an interesting quote talk a bit about that 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 actually is a a quote from john ianitis one of the top 10 most cited living scientists who happens to be an epidemiologist Uh, you would think a, a good time for him to shine and um he, in a recent presentation he did uh, in Austria that's available online, he was asked the question, um, what happened? Like, why are uh, voices of reason from the scientific community being shot down? And he, he had surmised after his experience, having his reputation tarnished for a year, uh, that people have, have lost their um, critical scientific approach to understanding this virus 
and they've taken this uh, wartime stance where we're this we're marching the army across the desert we've all got to be in it together and you just can't ask questions of whether it's worth marching the army across the desert or how many lives it might cost us uh, to do it or whether there's anything on the other side and I think that uh, really resonated with me of, of how I see it because so many people uh, that uh, I see just haven't switched their critical faculties on uh, when it comes to COVID. And, and I've written repeatedly, I was on Q&A on the ABC uh, a few months ago, and the response was outrageous when I said uh, kids shouldn't be vaccinated. And what was interesting, for example, is that the head of the Australian Medical Association was sitting right next to me. He felt the need to interrupt me, tell me I'm an idiot, and then conclude that actually it's the current medical advice not to vaccinate children because they're such low risk. And uh, I'm just like, what is the purpose of, of that? Like, you've just confused the whole audience about what the medical advice is to make me feel like, some kind of outsider or, or a deserter from this army platoon. Yeah, it's like you're not the right uh, yeah. kind of person that you're saying the same thing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm telling you exactly what you just said and you felt the need to make me seem like an outsider for saying it. And um, I just thought that was completely unreasonable. Um, so that's the type of thing. So, for example, I, I wrote recently on my blog a summary of all the contradictions that we face on COVID. So... We can see, for example, uh, in highly vaccinated areas that vaccines aren't reducing transmission very much. They certainly wear off or they were never as good as we'd hoped in the first place. Of course, they're, um, they're saving lives of the elderly who are the most at risk. And then, uh, so I wrote, for example, why would you have a vaccine passport if, if uh, vaccinated transmit COVID? Well, you know, you're not differentiating anything. You may as well have a youth passport and everyone under 40 gets to travel freely and everyone over it has to prove they're vaccinated. You may as well have an obesity passport because everyone who's obese has a higher risk of catching and therefore also transmitting. So, um, you know, people can't see it that way. And so I had this character on Twitter tell me he wants to complain to my university about what I said. Couldn't tell me that there was any wrong information. I linked to plenty of scientific papers. I'm a... I'm a trained economist. I know how to lie with statistics, so I'm pretty good at reading scientific papers. Um, but there, there was no argument. It was just, I'm scared that you're saying this. And if you're right, then it's probably too much to handle that we've done the wrong thing for so long with such severe consequences. So there's a real sort of human incentive to make sense of your previous actions by believing something that doesn't have any evidence. So Cameron, what do you think's driving that? Is that just a sunk cost bias or is there something else? Because it had to start somewhere. And at the beginning of this pandemic, it felt like at some point people did sort themselves into tribes. Is it that or is it a combination? Uh, that's a really uh, astute question, Parnell. I think, I think it's both. It's, it's firstly, yes, the sunk cost bias. So we need to... Um, we're going down the wrong road, but we have to make sense of our previous decision. So we keep going and hope for the best. That's certainly true. Um, I, the worst prediction I've made in the last couple of years was during the first lockdown, I said, this can't go on in two or three weeks, the world's going to wake up to what they're doing um, to their society. 
the evidence was already pretty clear then with the cruise ship uh, Italy and a few other outbreaks where you had a pretty good handle of what the total size of a wave of this pandemic would be. And I just thought there's got to be enough sensible people in enough positions of power who are also personally affected to unwind all this. Now, it's likely to be two or three years, not two or three weeks, unfortunately. And I think a lot of that's the sunk cost bias that we just, we've got to make sense of what we did last year by doing it again. Otherwise, everyone looks like a fool. Um, and I think politically, that's a bit of a wedge we're in. That no political party can say right now, we've got to open the borders, we've got to let people out. Because the other party simply wins by saying, these people want to kill your grandma. There's no, you can't beat that, right? Politically. Right. But so I think it's that. Crazy. But the, the, sorry, the final thing that I would say um, about what you mentioned of sorting into tribes, I kind of wish now in retrospect that Trump had done some kind of harsh lockdown really early on. <laughs> because yes. everybody would have said it's the wrong thing to do if it was Trump's idea and we wouldn't have it. It would have lasted a couple of weeks and, and been over. And I, I'm really scared that that's the way uh, our collective thinking is evolving with this sort of default towards the opposite of what the bad political party says, whichever side you're on. So I, I think that you're right. It's a that with, a, with an anecdote that happened to me at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the end of March last year, I actually have a friend who's an economist who'd written a fantastic analysis of exactly all of the costs that were going to be imposed by lockdown and found that her organisation wouldn't allow her to publish it. So she was very upset by that, told me about it. I ended up writing up much of her research as a, as a paper, which I, as an article, which I erroneously took credit for, you know, saying to her, look, you know, yeah. down the track, I will, I will tell everybody that that these ideas came from you to begin with, but for the time being, we can't do that. But I thought that was really interesting because, again, she was on the of the left, really, but looking critically at these issues. But I wonder how many voices like that were silenced by organisations who were sorting themselves like that. Yep, uh, I would say many. So after I was on Q&A and explained my views on the huge costs of lockdown compared to any plausible size of a COVID outbreak. Uh, I got over 100 LinkedIn messages, emails, Facebook messages, Twitter direct messages from people from all walks of life, um, biologists, professors, one guy's a vaccine scientist, and, and they all said, look, I'm so glad you said something because, you know, I, I have this inside knowledge of this and I can't say anything in my organization. And I, you know, I, I went, actually replied to a few of them and said, you know, would you be able to say this in public? And they, they're just like, no, no chance. I can't even say it in the lunchroom. Uh, so it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, yeah. The, the way we've done this. And I think scary if you have any interest in sort of personal freedom returning to even to the degree it was two years ago. I guess, yeah, I wanted to sort of take the position of, uh, I guess, uh, an average listener to this because I don't know, like I've read things that you've written that take that sort of have, have me taken aback a bit. Like they're not what I've been told. Like you just said before, um, you know, the vaccines don't really 
stop help much in stopping the spread and that's sort of different from what I've been told in you know all the things that I listen to on the ABC and also you've written a bit about masks not working and that kind of thing. so those sort of things they they really like I don't know what's right and what's wrong because then again they're different from what I've been told in the other media that I listen to um, and I guess what some people listening to this would be thinking is okay well let's say that Cameron Murray's right some of these things are really really you know there's dispute about them and whatever lockdown and all that we have and restrictions on life we have they're really temporary and it's not really going to cost that much they're really short term things will go back to normal what would you say to that no, the, your orders of magnitude are completely wrong. If if that's what you think, now let me let me say let me explain why. Because everyone's panicking about a very 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 small risk of death and disease from COVID, and the cost is shared over an enormous twenty five million people in Australia, and so even a very very small imposition on twenty five million people is worth a huge amount in terms of human life. Like there's people dying every day, right? Many of them spent their last good weeks of life locked down, unable to see their family. This is a real cost. You, you essentially destroyed 100% of the rest of those people's lives from the lockdown. Just yeah. the same as what COVID would have done to them. There are so many and stories so like you, that, aren't there? Yeah. Yep. When, you, when you add up across 25 million, it really doesn't take much of a cost uh, to impose on others. So one way I've, I've tried recently to show this is say, well, what is a lockdown day worth? How much well-being and human welfare are we, is, is one lockdown day worth 50%, 80% of a normal day? Okay, 25 million people by uh, losing 20% of a day is, uh, is uh, over 5 million um, days worth of life every single day you're in lockdown that we've wasted because 25 million losing 20% of a day for every single day we're in lockdown. Now, how many early deaths of old people does it take to ruin 5 million days? Like quite a lot. Um, so you've got to sort of take this perspective. It's a very, very small risk. Um, the, the data seems to suggest for if you're under 40 or 50 years old, it's, it's not as severe as the flu, the COVID. So, you know, under that's 50 not years what old, I, That's not what people. I'm being told day in, day out, though. There's a lot of stories about long COVID. There's a lot of stories about all sorts of, um, you know, effects on young people and, you know, deaths. It's of- not true. It's not true. Go to any country that's had a huge outbreak. Sweden's the notoriously basket case Sweden, they call it, right? Um. Basket case Sweden, I think, had nine deaths over two seasons of children up to age 19, which was roughly equal the number of deaths in the period before COVID. Um, so, you know, like, in terms of from respiratory illness. So, essentially, from the first wave, they had no child deaths, not, not a single one with schools open, no masks, no lockdown, not a single one. So I just can't see um, what we're doing. What we're doing is we're taking the rare individual case and we're reporting it because it's newsworthy when a young person gets COVID. And 
the reason it's newsworthy is because it's rare, not because it's common. And our brains aren't wired to register that. We had five flu deaths a week in, in Queensland alone in 2017, and no one heard boo about any of them. There were no profiles. There were no lying on my deathbeds. I wish I'd got the flu shot this year. There were nothing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people, people keep talking about, oh, the hospitals will get overwhelmed. Oh, what about, you know, this country? Someone told me, oh, this place, they used an ice skating rink as a morgue. And I'm like, wow, I haven't heard that. Let me look it up. And there's a news report saying that uh, the health department had signed an agreement to use the ice rink if it was required in the, you know, that outbreak period, but they never actually used it. Yet everybody who read the article now thinks this this ice rink was full of dead bodies for months. The Sweden so thing I, is, yeah. the Sweden thing is so interesting, and for someone just an average person like me, it's, it seems like it's so hard to figure out what is the reality of whether it's a, a horrendous um, mistake that they made not to do lockdowns like everyone else, or whether they came out of it really well. I, it just like seems to be a cultural debate rather than a scientific one. So, what um, what can you tell me about? Sweden. Um, okay, uh, so I, I, being a statistics nerd, I obviously have downloaded all the uh, mortality data from the Swedish Swedish uh, statistical agency. I can tell you that for age under fifty, there was no excess death last year, despite two waves, despite no lockdowns and no masking. Um, so there's that. So you've got whatever proportion of the population that is more than half, more like 60 or 70%, absolutely unaffected. You have small uptick in mortality of around 5% over the year of, uh, of those aged sort of 60 and above. But you've got to sort of understand 5% of a year is like a fortnight. It's like having an extra fortnight's worth of death in one year. It's not something you would notice. And we know people don't notice because... Sweden had the same number of deaths six years ago. So, and, and no one noticed them decline and no, no one really noticed them return to that level uh, uh, for, one, for one year. So, yeah, I just, all I see is panic. I, I just see an aversion, a willful blindness happening. And uh, I have... I have sort of studied willful blindness. There's actually a great book called Willful Blindness in groups that yeah, you don't want to show that what you're doing as a group is wrong. So you choose not to take the evidence that would show that what you're doing is wrong. And it's perfectly, uh, uh, it's a perfectly normal human behavior. But I, unfortunately, that's what I see at a mass scale. Cameron, the reason I'm asking about that book is because there when you were speaking, I was thinking about another book uh, by Yale professor Dan Kahan, who speaks about identity stacks. And, you know, I'm wondering when we're talking about people becoming tribal and the, the sort of sunk cost um, that becomes involved. So Kahan describes this Jenga-like um, Jenga structure which forms each of our identities. And it's very difficult when you're trying to remove a block at the bottom of the Jenga, which the identity has become built around, 
Um, you can't do that without people becoming seriously discomforted. Whereas if, you know, it was a recent belief and something that they weren't really hanging on to that hard, like a block on the top, you can obviously take that off and it's got no structural issue to it. So the reason that I'm sort of raising this is because I'm wondering what you think, how baked in these, these tribal attitudes or these attitudes are now and whether whether there's any opportunity to to change them what are you seeing among the people you know who are sort of calling you out and saying you're better than this whenever you <laughs> you bring up a factor you know the um whenever you suggest that there's another interpretation to the information <laughs> i really like that jenga idea um i'm gonna have to read that book now uh yeah i I am seeing identities being built on top of COVID. Uh, those who see it as the next big crisis, then we must do everything in our power to do it, to do something. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely see that. I don't see a lot of light at the end of the tunnel right now, unfortunately. I really don't. Uh, I think the thing that will change in Australia is that we'll just be embarrassed by the rest of the world getting on with life and and it will sort of seep into our culture eventually but i don't i think there'll be people who will hold on to this you know, for the next decade and be writing books and articles saying why why what we did was so great and trying to uh, write history the way they want it to be remembered so that they look like the hero and not the villain uh, I definitely see it turning out that way, and it's it's already starting. The interpretation, for example, of excess deaths versus COVID deaths, let's just say. Um, so the total number of people in 2020 who died is is more than who died from COVID. So uh, did they die because of lockdown? Did they die because of some other thing? How are we how are we splitting up? The people who died and blaming COVID versus our policy or whatever the case may be. Now that's a battle of who's going to write history, and I think uh, that'll remain conflicted for for decades until the people who are around writing now have all died, <laughs> and the next generation can can look at the historical evidence with a little bit less bias. So that's that's a bit of a sad note, but that's what I'm seeing. Do we know like how many? increases in you know suicides and that kind of you know, depressive illnesses and that kind of thing there's but there's been uh look we don't yet we have a reasonable idea that suicides for example in australia didn't change but we have a pretty good evidence that uh and visits to emergency departments from teenage girls who've attempted suicide are up 50 percent in the us and in australia so we have that sort of evidence um, yeah, it, it's going to keep trickling in and it's going to be a battle of interpretation. Uh, that's, that's the way I see it. Um, I just read a study today looking at uh, the development of babies born early 2020 uh, and whether they're hitting development milestones. And it looks like um, the, the cohort that's being tracked is far behind. Uh, How would you explain that? How, like what's behind that? The suggestion is it's just pure lack of socialization, not as many different faces and voices uh, and smells and, and sounds. Uh, that's 
that's the well, I mean I hope it's wrong from person to person to person and that's just something they get used to and something we don't think about but it happens in every single culture except yeah. this last couple of years yeah and I hope I hope that that sort of uh, evidence doesn't accumulate and it's actually a bit of a temporary blip and everyone's fine that'd be nice <laughs> Um, but uh, it's not something you want to see and it's not something that the pro-lockdown crowd wants to even acknowledge or try and quantify whether that was worth it. There's actually, what I started doing very early on was quantifying things and saying, okay, you, this is how many people could die of COVID. Um, what's that worth to the rest of us? You know, um, what should we give up? to save these people. We, we certainly don't save everyone from everything. Everyone dies of something. At some point as a society, we let people die of things. We let people take risks. Um, a lot of people just rejected that premise altogether. They said, no, every life is worth infinity. And I just, yeah, that's it such just a shows weird, that people it's such a have weird never thing. considered it, right? Yeah, it's, it's such a weird thing because everyone knows that individually and as a society we make these unspoken calculations every single day other like we we all know that we all don't you know we, no one is in favor of having a speed limit of 10 kilometers an hour in order to save the 1000 people who will die <laughs> this year yeah. on the roads but you know no one says you're advocating for these 1000 people to die because you're not in favor of putting the speed limit down to 10 kilometers an hour but that's yep. what we've done now haven't we you, we have and and this is the funny thing so you will we we actually do make these decisions explicitly all the time in public policy in health policy especially the the drugs that we're going to subsidize we say is it worth it does it save people's lives or is this some kind of a uh, little bit a little bit extra on top and uh and we do we decide what we're going to spend to to get people cheap cheap medicine uh, based on what it costs to prolong their life we do it in uh, when we uh, have requirements safety requirements for for businesses and mines and construction sites we go well you know is this risk worth it will anyone die what's the cost we we do it all the time i think the problem is once you look at it like that you have to admit that the costs are enormous and early on um, a group of economists had written a letter and said, oh, we must lock down and, and thought they had the answer to everything. Uh, they were challenged of, well, you're an economist. Why don't you see what the costs and benefits are? And they wrote an article in one of the mainstream papers and they're out by a factor of a thousand. It wasn't even a, a, a reasonable attempt by any stretch of the imagination. They counted deaths from COVID as worth a full 83 year human life. Um, they, they just made a mountain out of a molehill uh, once you added up all their errors and they never changed it. They never changed their view. Um, they didn't care that it was wrong. Uh, they acknowledged that, yeah, okay, that's not right, but I still don't care. <laughs> it's, it's quite amazing. Again, it's this type of willful blindness because you need to have a consistent story about you being a good person. And if you've been pro-lockdown and that's now bad, then you need, what story are you going to tell? I wonder also if it, there is something in that, in the 
um, what's preventing people from changing here is that usually, as you say, we make these calculations every day, but who is we? Usually the people making these calculations and decisions on our behalf are our policymakers who we've essentially outsourced, you know, the trolley problem to. So for anybody who doesn't, who's not familiar with that, it's the idea that there's one, per, you know, one child on one set of tracks who will get run over by this by this trolley unless you switch, unless you change the switch and the tram goes in the opposite direction, in which case it kills five older people or, you know, there are various variations of it. But people have a real problem reconciling uh, doing anything in those circumstances. They can't, they feel like they can't be the one to pull the lever and so they'll almost or they quite often leave the trolley in this thought experiment going on whichever path it was yeah. already going that's part of part of the reason we've got policy makers is we outsource these incredibly difficult moral sort of reasoning challenges to them so that we don't have to be the ones pulling the lever um and i wonder if in this particular instance because it was something so new it was outsourced too much, but I wonder also if polling and the use of polling these days has contributed to that problem. What do you think about yep. that? Uh, I think it's. I, I actually, actually, I agree that um, people have a hard time pulling the lever and saving more lives um, because it means they, their choice. They had to choose which people to kill. Uh, I don't think people actually have a problem doing that. It depends on how they've come to believe the problem they're facing is framed. Because, for example, if you think uh, the vaccines, for example, AstraZeneca kills one in a million people, that is much more than what COVID kills for young people, even up to age 30. So what you're doing by chanting, we must vaccinate kids, we must vaccinate everyone, is actually saying, oh, I want to kill the, a different set of children with a vaccine than would have died from COVID. So people are totally fine doing that as long as they don't realise they're doing it in many ways. Uh, on the polling, I think you're totally right. Uh, if lockdowns polled poorly, they wouldn't be done. 100%. No one's going to risk not being uh, premier um, by locking people down when people don't want it. That, that's, I think, the reality. I think um, Adam Crichton has a funny uh, sort of thought experiment and he says if the politicians had to pay a thousand dollars a day out of their salary for lockdowns we would have never had one single day <laughs> maybe that's proof that australia's you know very privileged because you know in countries where um you know you don't have big houses and nice gardens and people have to you know go into the world to make a living um Maybe that's just not possible, what, what you're talking about. Yeah. So, the, 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 well, the, the puzzle to me is this. People love lockdowns. The puzzle to me is that. And people rationalise it for, for weird ways, like, oh, but what if you had COVID and you killed someone? I'm like, remember those five people a week who died from the flu? Someone killed them by transmitting the flu. And no one said anything. And it's happened every single year. There's nothing new about it. It's just that you've never thought about it before. And now that you've had, you, now that you have, you're changed into some sort of irrational decision. 
So, and just as you speak, I hear the outrage from, I don't know, some public health expert on the ABC castigating you for comparing this to the flu. I don't know what the scientific yeah. argument is, but I can hear it happening. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's all these new taboos, right? Um, herd immunity. It's a taboo word. If you say it, you're wrong. No matter what you say it about or how you say it, you're wrong because it's a new taboo word. It sits in that Jenga stack of people's identity and you can't, um, yeah, you can't say it. And the same with comparing it to the flu. Well, yeah, okay. You can compare stuff to the flu. Is it 10 times more deadly? Okay, then it's you can compare it and say it's 10 times more deadly. That's fine. You can compare it and look at the distribution of the age of deaths or the comorbidities. And um, is it worse for more obese or elderly or, uh, you know, whatever the case may be? We can make those comparisons. Of course, you have to make the comparison. I think the, the instinct to reject the comparison is merely the instinct, this willful blindness instinct to, to not um, judge the relative risks and make policy choices based on relative risks it's just an all-in we're marching the army i don't care if we're wrong it's popular uh our premiers are going to get re-elected <laughs> uh, but i just want to yeah i just want to i want to probe a bit on your like the statistics that you use because um a lot of your conclusions are based on you know certain underlying um I suppose, um, you know, um, ways of looking at the data. For example, you, you know, you say that the vaccines aren't that great in the first place. They don't stop spread. Um, so what's the point of a vaccine passport? And, you know, you say that, that you know, masks are, you know, don't work that well and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just wondering, like, are you really, are you sure that you're not allowing your political and economic preferences to colour the way you look at that data like are you really looking at what the mainstream if you want to call it that uh what the evidence that they present um is and sort of trying to be really really um i suppose uh clear that you're not allowing yeah. your preferences to influence the way you look at the data yeah um great question and uh probably not i don't think i'm a i'm not a robot i'm a human being and so i i definitely have a a lens through which i see things and and all the human biases that come with it um but let me let me say two things um i when i started my phd i used to just go with whatever was being said and i was essentially trained over lunches and coffee breaks to actually come up with evidence for every step of the logic that I was trying to present. Um, and, and it was a difficult process because I had to, I had to stop believing things in my Jenga stack that I'd piled other beliefs on top of. And it meant that I was an outsider in groups that I uh, like um, social groups and, and that I belonged to where everyone thought, certain ways and i'm like well we don't really have the evidence for that because i i've looked now and uh it's a good story but i can't find any evidence i'm sorry i don't you know i can't believe this so it's a difficult transition and it's something I, i've done before and i understand why it's difficult but let me then the second thing i would point out is that everything i'm saying is not it was the mainstream science basically two years ago there's a reason everyone said, don't worry about masks. They're not effective. You know, we've had lots of trials on this. 
the Danish uh, trial on mask wearing recently, or at least since COVID, apparently the authors were abused and threatened for finding that they didn't work because people want to believe that it works. These are just scientists doing another trial. Oh, maybe it works for COVID in the, in the wild. Let's try it out. So, yeah, I'm sure I have biases. The, the point, I guess, being um, that I think I've got the orders of magnitude right. Mm. I might have a bias, but I'm not out by a factor of a thousand. I might be out by a factor of two or three because I've got a bias. But I'm not just ignoring uh, how to do cost-benefit analysis and going, oh, I'm out by a factor of a thousand. It doesn't matter. So, for example, you may have heard that getting hit, you, you know, your chances of being hit by lightning are higher than your chances of a side effect from the vaccine. Have you both heard that? Yeah, definitely. I've heard that. Yeah. Okay. So I heard that and I'm like, well, yeah, okay. These are really small numbers, right? I'm pretty good with what a million is or a billion is. Um, but then when I actually switched my skeptical brain on again and actually actively thought about it, that risk from dying by lightning uh, that was widely publicized was 0.5 per million, which implies that you know, 10, or 12 million, 10 or 12 people a year in Australia are dying from lightning strikes. And I was like, that's quite a lot, really. That's one a month. Or it's two a month over summer, or it's possibly more, right? Surely we are hearing about these people getting killed by lightning. So I went and checked the data, and it was actually... Uh, it was actually zero to two is the range of people killed by lightning in Australia in the last decade each year. So on average, it was 1.8 or something. What do you think happened there? Was it the was it a zero that was out or a couple of zeros that were no, out there? No, no, no. You see the author of this, this article in the conversation had just picked out whatever came up first in Google and yeah. it was some kind of pamphlet about warning kids that you can get hit by lightning and staying inside. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's my number. So it was, it was out by... Um, you know, a factor of five or more. And then the relative risk of the vaccine that was on the same chart, well, that was also out by a factor of two, given that we've had seven deaths from seven million doses of this AstraZeneca. So that's one in a million instead of 0.5. So in actual fact, um, their, their, their estimate was out by a factor of 10. And I didn't realise this until just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I wrote about it, I tweeted it, and then uh, someone I know emailed and said, you know what, when I read that, this is a statistician I know, said that made no sense to me. So I checked the data and I wrote to the author and I said, you better correct this because, you know, you don't want the anti-vaxxers challenging your data. You want the exact right numbers in your article. And the author said, no, no, it's fine. I don't care. And the editors of the conversation said, no, we're not going to change it. We're just going to change the citation to this, you know, be safe in lightning storms pamphlet, not the ABS records of death. And, and they didn't even want to change it out by a factor of 10. And they don't care because the message is correct. And I, that, that sort of stuff worries me because once you're out by a factor of 10 and you don't care, if you're out by a factor of 50 or 100, do you, do you care then? in misrepresenting the risks and the statistics? You know, I was going to ask a different question, but I've got a, another one based on your <laughs> messaging, the point about the messaging. So Jonathan and I have discussed this with other guests on this podcast so far, that 
A large component of the public health orders seem to be based on messaging rather than science. Like even the mask, um, mask wearing is often, you know, if you have to wear a mask alone in your car, it's not to prevent the transmission of COVID. You know, if you have to wear a mask by yourself on a park bench, it's not to transmit, it's not to prevent the transmission of COVID. So much of the public health messaging seems to be this sort of symbolic use of, of, um, of, me of something with a medical justification. And I'm concerned from a communications perspective, I'm concerned that people eventually cotton onto that and you then have a real problem on your hands because you can no longer say, well, we really are genuinely trying to follow the science. Um, all of a sudden, everything looks super, everything looks suspicious and you end up with conspiracy theorists. Um, you, they have a, they have a toehold to build their conspiracy theories on. Um, yep. Is that something you've seen in I'm totally in with your you. Work? It worries me that this short-term focus on, on messaging uh, is destroying long-term trust to actually do things that are useful and difficult in the future. Um, I, I totally agree. Um, and, and, and I think this, and, and people don't care. They're like, yeah, we've got to do this. It's, it sends a good signal. I guess if I had one final question, it is how do people learn to be more critical in their thinking without necessarily having the full of the statistics to their fingertips as you do, Cameron? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really... Sure. Uh, one of the one of the sort of rules of thumb with with COVID that I've used is if you want to understand what the medical views are, are when you're searching articles or where you're reading, make sure you read something from before 2020 when we all panicked, <laughs> because then you know you're getting uh, the the state of the medical debate or the discussion before people started panicking about whatever the case may be. Um, it's it's sort of um, it's also worth keeping in mind people's motivations and, and messaging the thing that we've talked about a few times. There are plenty of academics still. Uh, I'm very familiar in economics who will look at the evidence that conflicts with their view and just make up a reason why it supports their view. And <laughs> that's a that's a real challenge for people. But over time, that does get weeded out. So unfortunately, I don't have. Um, I don't have much great advice besides, you know, just double checking with yourself. How do I know that? Does the person saying, could the person have, who's saying it have said the opposite if that's what the evidence led them to? Because quite often you'll find that no matter what the evidence, people in certain, you know, certain journalists or, or, or heads of government agencies, they have to say certain things regardless of the evidence. So that's a good place to end. Thanks very much, Cameron. Um, if you want to read Cameron Murray's articles, his site is fresheconomicthinking.com, fresheconomicthinking, all one word. Uh, he also tweets vigorously at Dr. Cameron Murray. Oh, that's D-R Cameron Murray, all one word. Um, he does a lot of stuff on the housing market and challenging sacred cows on superannuation and... Uh, 
that you know um, game of mates type stuff which is how you know how the australian economy works you know it's good it's all good stuff that's all for today's loose cannon thanks for listening subscribe and tell your friends next time we've got charles firth with us on comedy defamation and free speech and how politicians are always suing people <laughs>